Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, the book of Acts, chapter 8. We have a wide variety of issues that are going to come up today in Acts chapter 8 that I think you're going to find interesting. Now last week we concluded Acts chapter 7 with the stoning death of Stephen, the first disciple of Christ to die as a martyr. Now sadly, like his master Yeshua, Stephen's death was at the urging of his own people, the Jews. And as with Yeshua, the underlying issue that brought on Stephen's execution was one of a fierce disagreement over halakha. Halakha, Jewish law. To be clear, the particular halakhic issue in question had to do with Yeshua's declaration as being the Messiah, something that only a small minority of Jews at that time accepted. But it also serves to highlight just how, much, just how sensitive that issue was. This issue of biblical interpretation, oral Torah, that such that too much disagreement could literally lead to loss of life. Now we've had some in-depth discussions about the synagogue, about the oral Torah, also known as tradition, and that oral Torah was but interpretations of the Torah of Moses. However, then as now, the interpretations as given by revered rabbis, and especially when eventually written down into the Mishnah and the Talmud, are considered as divine as is the original Torah given on Mount Sinai. So now let's learn another term. Halakha. Halakha. Usually it is said that this word means Jewish law. And Jewish law is referring not to the Bible, but rather to rulings that were made by rabbis. However, we need to nuance that just a bit so as to properly understand what is in the minds of the rabbis and of the lay Jews when that term is employed. Now, halakha more literally and appropriately means the path that one walks. Certain rulings and laws define that uniquely Jewish path and it sets down boundaries. The word halakha is is derived from the Hebrew root word he lamed kaf, which means to walk or to travel or to go. Thus, halakha represents the overall legal code of conduct that Jews are supposed to live by. Now, if you asked a rabbi where the laws of halakha come from, he would tell you they come from three sources. The Torah of Moses, oral Torah, and long-held customs, some of which are so old and obscure, no one really knows when they started or why they were even begun. However, as I've taught you over the last several weeks, from a Jewish perspective, you can't stick a sheet of paper in between the Torah of Moses and oral Torah. 
traditions because they are seen as essentially one and the same substance. Now, academically, which is what I'm speaking at the moment, a Jewish scholar would parse his words and he would agree that from a technical viewpoint, the Torah of Moses is indeed different and it's an older document than the Talmud. <clears throat> and customs. Well, customs aren't quite the same things as the Torah of Moses or even the Bible interpretations that have become the lawful traditions. But in practice and in weight, the Torah of Moses, all Torah and customs are all seen as generally equally valid and authoritative. But even more difficult to grasp, especially for Gentile Christians and students of the New Testament. The terms used for these three sources of halakha, the Torah of Moses, oral Torah and customs are commonly used by Jews interchangeably. And we will find that Paul, especially in his epistles, will use terms like law and customs and traditions interchangeably. Why? Because that was merely the everyday mindset and the common way of speaking among Jews in New Testament times. Thus, depending on his audience and on his purpose, Paul, who was himself quite a scholar, would use these Jewish terms as commonly spoken among ordinary Jews in a casual conversation, or he might get more technical and nuanced as he dealt with the deeper matters of scriptural truth. So as we go forward, just understand that what halakha means to the Jewish world is this overall body of laws that governs Jewish life. And these laws are set down almost exclusively by rabbis, hence the nickname rabbinical law or Jewish law. Thus when a Jew speaks of halakha, rabbinical law, and Jewish law, these all mean the same thing. And as we reach the time of Yeshua, Halakha consisted mostly of the rapidly developing traditions, the oral Torah, of the synagogue leaders. Now be aware, however, that not all rabbis and synagogues believed in the same Bible interpretations. They didn't all go by some universally accepted halakha. And part of the reason there were so many synagogues located in Jerusalem is because so many different rabbis taught their own interpretations as superior to any other. It's no different than in Christianity, whereby we can all say we're Christians, yet at the same time we have several thousand denominations, none of which agree with the others on all points of biblical interpretations. And the disagreements are often perceived as being strong enough that we don't believe we can worship together comfortably. Thus Christianity finds it necessary to divide ourselves into many denominations and churches. This is essentially what Jewish life and religion was like 
at the time of Christ. One more associated Jewish term, and we're going to move on. So you've got the first one, halakha. In Hebrew, the word for commandment is mitzvah, or mitzvot in plural. Mitzvah, mitzvot. So in the Torah, we find that as Moses is receiving God's instructions up on Mount Sinai, the rules he is receiving are called mitzvot, commandments. So in halakha, individual rulings and instructions of the Talmud, the written rulings of the rabbis, are also called mitzvot. Because in Judaism, they generally carry the same weight as do the commandments given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it has become so in Judaism and in Christianity that the English word words law and commandment have become synonymous and interchangeable. A law is a commandment, a commandment is a law. So today when a Jew speaks of mitzvot, he's not so much thinking about Mount Sinai. He's thinking about the many rulings and laws of the rabbis. However, just to confuse things a little bit more, the word mitzvah can mean something else. It can mean doing a good deed or an act of kindness. And I'm sorry to tell you that even this gets nuanced to a whole other level. I'm also happy to tell you we won't go there today. (laughs) Now our little walk down an avenue of everyday basic terms used in Judaism is for just one purpose to help you understand the substance of Judaism and the synagogue as it was in Christ's era and in the era of the apostles. These terms and their meanings that have your head spinning right now were as well understood for them as how to turn a water faucet on and off is for us today. The Jewish people and the Jewish writers of the New Testament, they didn't have to think deeply as they used and communicated these terms. The context of the conversation dictated exactly how to understand their meaning. It was the it was just instinctive, it was automatic, it was easy. At the same time, the New Testament era Jews also weren't speaking or thinking in terms of explaining Judaism and the Messiah to Gentiles, whether contemporary to them or from decades to hundreds of years later. It's our problem. It's our task as modern day believers to dig and to research and to find out what these terms meant to those Jews who wrote them. Of course, the easy way out, and it's a truly false way, is to declare a Christian doctrine that says that Scripture is so mystical that whatever it means to whomever reads it, in whatever culture, whatever language, in whatever period of history we might live, that's what it means. No context is necessary. So we are told, just don't worry about what the writers intended. It's no wonder that Christianity has become a disjointed armada of rudderless ships 
aimlessly wandering on a stormy sea, having lost its direction, purpose, and first love. Let's keep moving forward in the hope that we can at least help to right that ship and get back into God's will for His worshipers. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1370. And Shaul gave his approval to his murder. This is referring back to chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen. And starting with that day... There arose intense persecution against the Messianic community in Jerusalem. All but the emissaries were scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Shomron, Samaria. Some godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply, but Saul, Paul, set out to destroy the Messianic community. Entering house after house, he dragged off both men and women and handed them over to be put into prison. However, those who were scattered announced the good news of the word wherever they went. Now Philip went down to a city in Samaria and was proclaiming the Messiah to them. And the crowds were paying close attention to what Philip said as they heard and they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. For many people were having unclean spirits driven out of them, shrieking. Also many paralytics and crippled persons were being healed so that there was great joy in that city. But there was a man named Shimon, Simon, Uh, in the city who for some time had been practicing magic and astonishing the nation of Shomron, Samaria, claiming to be somebody great. Everybody gave heed to him from the lowest to the highest, saying, this man is the power of God, called the great power. And they followed him, because for a considerable time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they came to believe Philip, as he announced the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Yeshua the Messiah, they were immersed, both men and women. Moreover, Shimon himself came to believe. And after being immersed, he attached himself closely to Philip. And he was amazed as he saw the miraculous signs and great works of power that kept taking place. Well, when the emissaries in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Kepha and Yochanan, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. For until then, he had not come upon any of them. They had only been immersed into the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then, as Kepha and Yochanan placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Shimon saw that the Spirit was given when the emissaries placed their hands on them and he offered them money. Give this power to me too, he said, so that whoever I place my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. But Kepha said to him, Your silver go to ruin and you with it for thinking the free gift of God can be bought. You have no part at all in this matter because in the eyes of God your heart's crooked. Repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps you will yet be forgiven for holding such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are extremely bitter and completely under the control of sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that none of the things you have spoken about will happen to me. And then after giving a thorough witness and speaking the word of the Lord, Peter and John started back to Jerusalem announcing the good news to many villages in Samaria. An angel of Adonai said to Philip, 
Get up, go southward on the road that goes down from Yerushalayim to Gaza, the desert road. So he got up and went, and on his way he caught sight of an Ethiopian, a eunuch who was minister in charge of all the treasure of the Kandake, or queen of Ethiopia. He had been to Jerusalem to worship, and now as he was returning home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over to his chariot and stay close to it. As Philip ran up, he heard the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? He asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. Now the portion of the Tanakh that he was reading was this. He was like a sheep led to be slaughtered, like a lamb silent before the shearer. He does not open his mouth. He was humiliated and denied justice. Who will tell his descendants since his life has been taken from the earth? The eunuch said to Philip, here's my question to you. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip started to speak, beginning with that passage, and he went on to tell him the good news about Yeshua. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's some water. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be immersed? He ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip immersed him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw no more of him, because he continued on his way full of joy. But Philip showed up at Ashdod, and continued proclaiming the good news as he went through all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now Luke minces no words about his personal friend Paul. He says in verse 1 that Paul was in full agreement with the execution of Stephen. Now different Bible versions will use different terms to characterize Stephen's execution. Killing, death, even murder. The Greek word that's being translated is aneresis. aneresis. And it means to destroy, to kill, to murder. This Greek term is meant to denote an unjustifiable death or the destruction of something that's undesirable. So while Stephen's execution was indeed legally sanctioned by the Jewish high court, nonetheless, Luke makes it clear that this death was not justifiable. It never should have happened. And as we learn in it, back in Acts 7, it took false witnesses making up false accusations to get Stephen condemned. But even if the charges had been true, to raise his crime to the level of blasphemy of God, thereby giving cause for capital punishment, that itself is dishonest and unjustifiable. Verse 1 continues that the execution of Stephen now opened the floodgates of persecution upon the believers that were living in Jerusalem. The result was that most of the believers fled Jerusalem. However, the twelve disciples remained behind. Now I want to address this sensitive issue of characterizing and labeling the believing community in Jerusalem. Almost all Bibles will say something like, 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now the word I want to focus on is church. The Greek that is being translated is ecclesia. Ecclesia. It's a rather generic word that means an assembly. It can denote any kind of an assembly. In our case, this is of course an assembly of believers in Yeshua. So, what's the problem with using the term church? Well first, I think that David Stern's translation of Messianic community far more appropriately characterizes this assembly. These were exclusively Jewish believers who were being persecuted. Second of all, the church, the term church is anachronistic. That is, no such thought of the word church as referring to a unique religious system based on Jesus Christ would exist for hundreds of years. So inserting the word church is to read backward into the holy text something that didn't even exist in that era. Church was originally a Latin word. That meant assembly. So as with the Greek ecclesia, it could apply to almost any kind of assembly for any purpose. Later on, the church co-opted, the the term church was co-opted and it became by default a term for the members of a new Rome-based Gentile religion that worshipped Jesus. This targeted use of the term church developed only after Gentiles wrestled control of the Yeshua movement away from the Jews and after it became centered in Rome and after it became a thoroughly Gentile religious institution. So, to call the initial group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem the church is to paint an intellectually dishonest picture. And frankly, I think it's an insult to the memory of those first Jews whose persecution for the brief from Christ we're reading about right now. The reality is that this was about one sect of Judaism being opposed and bullied by other sects of Judaism. Now it's important that we, that despite the bulk of the believers uh, leaving Jerusalem to avoid persecution in whatever form it was taking, that we find the twelve disciples remaining there because it permitted the core leadership of the believing community to hang on to its position of authority and thus to keep the movement alive and retaining an official direction. So it is with this backdrop of suspicion and danger and persecution that we find some courageous believers nevertheless stepping forward to claim Stephen's body so as to give him a proper burial and then go through all the customary Jewish mourning rites to honor him. Now there's little doubt that the reason the local believers performed his funeral is because Stephen had no immediate family show up to do the sad task. I mean, whether they stayed away out of fear, or because they perhaps saw Stephen as a traitor, or there just wasn't any family nearby, we just don't know. However, it is the duty of the immediate family to deal with the death of a loved one. Even so, Jewish tradition is a corpse has to be buried by sunset. So, word 
couldn't have yet reached Stephen's family up in Samaria, assuming he even had family there. Now, verse 3 contrasts this caring nature of the twelve disciples to properly bury their brother in faith, Stephen, to this cruel Paul who hunted down frightened believers in their own homes, taking them into custody. Now, I again remind you, these believers who were being pursued had committed no crime. The issue was over Halakha. The Messianic sect followed different Bible interpretations, ones taught to them by Yeshua, than the other sects of Judaism did. And the main point of disagreement was the same one that exists to this day. Who is the Messiah? The description of Paul's actions is further proof that Paul was operating in some kind of an official capacity for the Sanhedrin. Certainly any arrest would have been by court order. A private citizen can't just go around arresting people as they saw fit. And equally as certain, the Romans wouldn't have had any involvement. This was strictly a Jewish religious matter. There was no breach of Roman law that had occurred. There was no threat to Roman sovereignty from the believers. Now don't get the idea that this persecution of believers was the first or the only violent infighting between factions factions of Judaism over the matters of Halakha. One of the most infamous incidents of struggles among Jewish factions occurred between two of the greatest rabbinical academies in the Holy Land, that of Hillel and the other of Shammai. They were rivals and each taught a halakha that differed from the other in some important ways. Just before the Jewish revolt that led to the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, an intense confrontation arose between adherence to these two different schools of Jewish thought over the matter of a proposal called the Decree of 18 Things. This was a proposal that would established several important rabbinical rulings that affected some very sensitive issues of halakha. The disagreement over its contents, and we don't know what exactly was in that document, was so severe that a number of disciples of the school of Hillel murdered a significant number of disciples of the school of Shammai in order to stop the proposal from going to a vote. Well, as are so many things with God. The result of this persecution of believers produces the opposite results from what man intended. These believers who were chased out of Jerusalem didn't go into hiding. They merely went elsewhere. And they began to spread the good news of Yeshua. But let's be clear. For the moment, the persecution was limited to Jerusalem. So the believers fled to other villages and towns in Judea and Galilee and even to Samaria as we, as we hear with the story of the believer Philip. Now verse 5 says, Philip went to a city in 
Shomron, Shomron being Hebrew for Samaria. This Philip is not the Philip of the original 12 disciples. Rather, he is this Hellenist believer, Philip, who's one of the seven men who were chosen uh, to deal with the food distribution to the widows. Now we know this by deduction, since verse 1 explains that the emissaries, meaning the 12 disciples, well, they stayed behind in Jerusalem. It was the others who fled. Now this means that Philip was a Greek speaker. And Greek was a language commonly spoken in Samaria. No doubt Philip knew some Hebrew, some Aramaic as well. So he was a good candidate to go to Samaria and preach the gospel. Now, Philip's destination also shows that the believers had adopted their master Yeshua's view that the Samaritans were just as worthy as others to be told of the good news. Despite the fact that Samaritans were considered unclean and traitors to Judaism. Nevertheless, Philip, in the power of God, healed and drove out unclean spirits in Yeshua's name, and this caused the Samaritans to listen to what he had to say. Now remember, the Samaritans were not considered as Jews. In fact, Exactly what they were is not easy for us to define and neither was it easy for people of that era. There was a a thread of Jewishness but an equally large thread of Gentileness in Samaria's population. So in the eyes of Judaism, Samaritans were an unclean mixture, an ungodly hybrid. They weren't quite Jews and they weren't quite Gentiles. Now the Samaritans created a huge problem theologically for the rabbis that would continue on for centuries such that the Talmud devotes an entire section on how to deal with the Samaritans. It's called Tractate Kutim. Now Kutim are what the Jews called the Samaritans. That was because... The city of Kuta, get it? Kuta, Kutim. The city of Kuta was where many foreign immigrants were brought in by the Assyrians to repopulate the land of all the Hebrews that they'd kicked out. Now, what is interesting is that in Talmud Tractate Kutim, while the rabbis say that the Samaritans are to be excluded from the Jewish community because, and I quote, they have become mixed up with the priests of high places, that in fact they can rejoin the Jewish community if, and I quote, they have renounced Mount Gerizim and acknowledged Jerusalem and the resurrection of the dead. So what we see is that the issue for the rabbis about the Samaritans, it had far less to do with them being some mixed genealogy of Hebrews and Gentiles, but rather that the Samaritans didn't practice any kind of of accepted traditional Judaism. They practiced a religion that was based on their own version of the Torah of Moses, yet they also didn't believe in the prophets of Israel. But even without accepting the Old Testament prophets, interestingly, the Samaritans were still expecting a Messiah. This was largely due because Moses 
said that in time a prophet like me will arise. I think it's a reasonable assumption that Moses' statement would have been the basis of the approach that Philip took in delivering the good news to the Samaritans since while they revered Moses, any talk about fulfilling the prophets of the Bible, something they didn't accept, so they weren't familiar with them, that would have ended all the conversation. See, Philip's approach to true evangelism is a great application lesson for all modern day believers to consider. When we are speaking to non-believers about Christ, it's important that we approach them on their terms and in the context of what they understand and what they are capable of hearing and absorbing. We find Paul doing exactly this on more than one occasion. That is why the more typical Western evangelical Christian approach of presenting the Romans Road or other such gospel formulas is found on tracks to explain one's need for redemption is only useful if the unbeliever has spent some time in church and is at least a little bit familiar with the concepts and the lingo. Because non-churched people can't make heads or tails out of such information or these terms that we commonly use. And neither, of course, can Jews nor people of other religious backgrounds. They don't know what we're talking about. As a result of his approach, you see, Philip had marvelous success in Samaria, as we're told in verse 12, that many were immersed, both men and women. See, Philip's success and the amazing signs and wonders that he performed caught the eye of a well-known local magician named Shimon, or in English, Simon. In fact, we're told that Simon became a believer, that after he was baptized, he clung closely to Philip. No doubt to Simon, a practitioner of the magical arts, what Philip did made him feel like Philip was a comrade in the profession. He wanted to learn from him how to do some of these signs and miracles that Shimon had never been able to do. Now it makes sense that Simon would practice his occupation in Samaria where every sort of belief was tolerated. This man fascinated especially the early church fathers. And there arose among them for centuries great debates over whether Simon was actually saved or if he was merely an imposter. Justin Martyr, who lived just a couple of generations removed from the New Testament era, he wrote about Simon, calling him Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And he says that Simon was from the uh, Sumerian city of Gita, but later on he moved to Rome. In fact, the Gnostic set of Christianity claims Simon is a kind of Gnostic church father. There is a hint of Gnosticism where we see in verse 10 that Simon called himself the great power of God. This terminology fits very nicely with Gnostic philosophy. Well, now things start to get quite theologically dicey for us. And I need you to be open-minded 
But what I'm about to say to you is the association between salvation, baptism, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit varies greatly among Christian denominations and it's probably among the most sensitive issues that causes much divisiveness within the church. Verse 14 tells us that the twelve disciples in Jerusalem heard about what was happening in Samaria as a result of Philip's work. So, Peter and John went to Samaria to see for themselves. No doubt they were skeptical considering this frayed Jewish relationship with these unclean half-breeds. But even more, the passage in verse 15 explains that only when Peter and John came and prayed for those who had been immersed did they finally receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So, are we to take from this verse that the acts of coming to faith in Christ and then being immersed in His name are completely separate from the issue of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Which certainly seems to be the case here. Now, I researched a wide variety of Bible translations and even some ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts. They all come out the same. So there's no error, there's no disagreement over the plain meaning that these new Samaritan believers already baptized had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And they didn't until Peter and John came to give it to them. This issue is important for us. So I want to take a moment to reread this short passage. Look in your Bibles. Look at it. Acts chapter 8. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. Look at it. When the emissaries in Jerusalem heard that Shomron had received the word of God, they sent them Kepha and Yochanan, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Ruach HaKodesh. For until then, he had not come upon any of them. They had only been immersed into the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then, as Kepha and Yochanan placed their hands on them, they received the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It was only when Peter and John laid their hands on those who were already baptized, baptized believers, that they received the Holy Spirit. Now notice, there's no suggestion that Philip's baptism of them was inferior or defective or even premature. That is, perhaps they didn't quite believe just yet. There's no hint that Peter and John even preached to the Samaritan believers to clear up some theological misconceptions that Philip might have accidentally created. Further, we usually find in the New Testament that once a disciple preached the good news and a person came to faith in Yeshua, if there was water suitable for immersion nearby, baptism was generally immediate. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon faith in Messiah is usually also immediate, as evidenced in Acts chapter 10 when we get there. So it seems reasonable to say that what we see here as as uh, as it regards the Holy Spirit 
coming later and by means of human intervention is an exception to the rule if there's even a rule let me add to this by saying that in Paul's case of coming to faith in Yeshua in the next chapter Acts chapter 9 it seems that the Holy Spirit fell on him after he believed but before he was baptized so what do we to take from all this now most evangelical Christian denominations say that the sequence is that instantly upon belief the Holy Spirit indwells and then baptism comes after sooner or later but strictly as symbolic most Pentecostal Christian denominations say that like here in Acts 8 baptism in water is a separate event from baptism of the Holy Spirit So a person can be saved and immersed in the name of Yeshua but still not have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. I'm not here to dispute any of this except to say that clearly the New Testament shows God does not seem to have a rigid formula about the sequence of coming to faith, baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit. We see it happen differently under different circumstances. And if God doesn't have a rigid doctrine about the sequence, then neither should we adopt a rigid doctrine about the exact sequence. Nor should we question someone's faith as insincere or incomplete because they didn't go through the same sequence that we did. Or that our religious leadership says they should have. Now since we are temporal creatures, that is, we're earthbound, we are controlled by time and space then we have little choice on earth and in practice but to devise some sequence or another for ceremonial matters that is we have to have some order of doing things or everything's random and chaotic yet we also don't have to demand that our way is God's way and there is no other way Thus here at Seed of Abraham Ministries, for instance, we expect a person to come to faith and then to approach our elder to request immersion. The elder then contacts the person, asks them to pronounce their faith to him, and he discusses the meaning of water immersion with them. Once these important preliminaries are completed, only then will a Seed of Abraham Ministry pastor immerse that person in living water. While standing in the water, that baptismal candidate is to publicly profess his or her trust in Messiah Yeshua to witnesses and to acknowledge their undying love and allegiance to him. Now this sequence is not accomplished in the belief that what we do is the only possible God-authorized baptismal protocol. Rather, it's just a a logical, practical approach that seems to meet all the biblical criteria. It works. But now a big question looms before us. With all this information, were the Samaritans really saved? How about Simon Magus? After all, we see him being strongly rebuked by Peter in the next couple of verses. Many Christian leaders 
And Bible commentators insist that what Peter did was to essentially excommunicate Shimon. So perhaps he was a believer for a few days, but no longer. Others say that Simon is so superficial in his belief, he could not possibly have been genuine at any point. Does all these kinds of accusations sound familiar to people you know? Verse 18 begins by Simon observing that the Holy Spirit came when Peter and John laid their hands on these Samaritan believers. Apparently there was something visible and tangible that occurred that impressed Simon. We don't know what it was. I'm not going to speculate about it. However, afterwards, Simon gets excited. He wants to have this same spectacular power that John and Peter possess. After all, he was a revered magician. He was used to wielding supernatural power. So he offered to give money to purchase this ability. And Peter bluntly tells Simon, this is not a power that can be purchased. Rather, if he ever obtains it, it will come as a free gift from God. Peter continues that Shimon will have no part in this matter. He needs to repent of his wrong attitude and pray for forgiveness. Now from this incident, there is much doubt in some quarters of Christianity if Simon was actually ever saved. My view is that from the information we are given, the Samaritans were indeed saved, and so was Shimon saved, and remain so even after Peter's strong rebuke. Verse 13 says straight away, Moreover, Simon himself came to believe. Pretty definitive statement. Look, Simon was reacting according to everything he knew from his past. It takes time to unlearn wrong things to drop bad habits. Simon had no previous training in the Torah or even in the tradition so far as we know. Like any ordinary Jew would have received because he wasn't a Jew. Everything was new to him. Only a few days earlier he was a proud pagan sorcerer. How could he be expected to understand the finer points of his new faith and of God's word so quickly? As for Simon, nowhere do we see anything but a repentant response from him after Peter chastised him. No arguing, no debating, no denial. We also never hear of Simon renouncing his relationship with the Lord. Simon was saved. What may have happened at a later date outside of any biblical information, I can't say. But my own personal experience with the Lord has taught me something valuable. Being a believer is an ongoing process. And it involves a never-ending renewal of our minds. Paul calls this process being perfected, not achieving perfection. So, don't be discouraged if you aren't moving along in your journey with Christ Christ as quickly or smoothly as you'd hoped. At the same time, 
don't expect God to do all the work. You must make a sincere effort to learn, to mature, and when you err, be open to being chastised by God at times, just like Simon was. None of this indicates that God has abandoned you, nor that you don't have a relationship with Him. We should not think this of ourselves, and we should not think it of anyone who insists they are worshipers of Christ. But they sure don't seem to act like it sometimes. In today's world of anything goes, pleasure at any cost, gender confusion, sexual freedom with a lack of boundaries, insatiable hunger for wealth, self-centeredness and entitlement, other non-biblical lifestyles, we need to expect that new believers who come from this background are not going to instantly behave in a godly manner the moment they come to faith in Messiah. It's an unreasonable expectation. We have an entire world full of Samaritans and Simons. They can only be as sincere in their new faith as they know how to be. They need training in God's Word. They need discipling. They need encouragement in their everyday lives. And it will likely be needed for many years to come. Perhaps you can be that person who comes alongside to guide and to mentor. We'll finish up chapter 8 in Acts next time.